What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Voices from the Mausoleum. Uh, in today's edition of Five Influential Horror Movies, um, I have Preston Fossil, and uh, we're going to talk about his five influential horror movies and why he chose them. Yeah. All right, Preston, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Preston Fossil. I'm a uh, novelist and biographer. Uh, I have uh, two published books out, uh, Two, two fiction books, and then my uh, third uh, my third book, which is my first nonfiction book, uh, was just released in December. It's a uh, biography of Sleazewood Express magazine founder Bill Landis, and it's called uh, Landis, the Story of a Real Man on 42nd Street. And then I'm also the managing editor for uh, dailygrindhouse.com. All right, nice. Yeah, and I'll link all of Preston's stuff below. His socials, uh, a link to his book, and all that kind of stuff will be listed below. Um, so did you have like a particular order or do you want me just to kind of go in the order that I have in front of me? You know, I forgot which five we talked about. December turned into such a crazy month. Oh, so I know. this is going to be kind of a cool uh, thing for me to uh, go back and remember yeah. what my five influences were. Okay. Um, I can kind of, if you want, because I've done this with other lists, because especially because the ones that you gave me were so vastly different from each other, we can kind of go from lighter to the heavier if you want. And, Sounds and good. then that way um, we can just go in that order. So I think probably based off of your list, I would say maybe the lightest one on there uh maybe night of the comet uh yeah i, I love night of the comets uh yeah. so when i was in college i used to write the short stories that ran in our campus's literary journal okay. and they were all about the people who worked and went to theaters on 42nd street in the 1970s okay and uh they were all parts of this this novel that i was working on and like these short stories were kind of testing grounds for different ideas and characters that i was then building into this book that i since have called the theater story Okay. Uh, I, I, I never finished it. I worked on this thing all through college, and then I kept working on it after college. Okay. And it got up to like 250,000 words, and there was like 25 main characters, and nothing had happened. <laughs> uh -huh. And I just I didn't want to give up on this thing, and I just kept adding and adding and going back and revising. And there was just something off about it. There was just something that I just couldn't capture with it. And one night... I had gotten Night of the Comets in my Netflix uh, DVD. This was still back in the days when uh, you uh, sent away from in the mail. Right. Yeah. And I can't remember how I ended up with this on the list in the first place, but I had gotten to the point where I had just forgotten what order I'd put stuff in. And I was just kind of going, you know, stuff comes in. It's a surprise. Okay, cool. I put this thing yeah. on there. So Night of the Comet comes in. I put it in and I watch it. And I realized this is the story that I've been trying to tell this is what that theater story should have looked like and felt like, okay. and this is how the character should have been. And the next day I decided to just completely scrap it and wow. completely okay. start over from scratch. And that is what eventually set me on the road to writing my first book, Our Lady of the Inferno, which actually got published, which actually was my foot in the door for okay. being a professional published horror writer. And I actually based one of the characters in that story on Kelly Maroney's character, okay. Samantha, in the movie. Yeah. And if I had never seen Night of the Comets, 
I think I would still be working on that theater story. I would still be adding and adding to it. And I'd be like this Henry Darger guy right now with like a million word (laughs) book piled up in my closet somewhere. Right. Yeah. I I had actually seen Nine of the Comet a really long time ago. So I did rewatch it to kind of refresh. And it it is a really fun movie. I I didn't remember... maybe like as fun as it was. I remembered it being kind of cheesy, but I didn't remember enjoying it as much as I did rewatching it. So I'm glad that I, I rewatched it. Um, it is it is a fun movie. That's crazy to think about, though, that you worked that long on something and seeing that one movie. Yeah. that's It was, it was just this weird, amazing feeling. It was simultaneously kind of disheartening because I realized like I just got to put this thing away and just like call it a loss. But at the same time, I was just so exhilarated and excited that like I felt like I'm finally on the right track now. Yeah, I bet that was a really good feeling. Yeah, that movie was a lot of fun. I think I have a hard time sometimes with, with horror that's kind of meant to be comical I think it sometimes can be a really really hard balance and I feel like considering the time frame this movie came out and the people that were in it and other things that they did I feel like it it did a really good job of balancing both of these really uncomfortable weird moments with these like really fun moments too um and it was really well balanced for what it was which I appreciate it because that's kind of hard to find yeah I mean you're you're absolutely right so many horror comedies I feel really lack horror they're just really comedies that people have pumped buckets of blood into so they can call it a horror comedy it's very hard and very rare to walk that line and that's something I love about Night of the Comet is that it knows what it's doing and it pulls it off with this real like lightning in a bottle of plumb yeah and I think it's 100% honest about what it is too it's not trying to take itself too seriously which helped too um so i yeah i really liked that one i don't I, i'm surprised i haven't like heard a lot of people talk about that one when i talk about favorites with people so it's kind of fun that that one was on your list um and then i guess like this the next light one would which is kind of still kind of dark when you really watch it especially as an adult would be uh beetlejuice was on your list yes so <laughs> this was really one of the first horror films that i ever saw Okay. Uh, it came out when I was still very young, and it's yeah. it's the weirdest damn thing. My dad hates horror movies. My mom okay. absolutely loves horror movies, and like a okay. lot of my favorite horror movies I first saw with my mom as a teenager, sure. and like she and I would rent stuff and like go to the theater sometimes, but yeah. a lot of the big influential horror movies in my life are because my dad showed them to me. Okay, and that's like, yeah. Yeah, my dad showed me Monster Squad, he showed me Ghostbusters, and he showed me Beetlejuice. Yeah. And I saw this when I was like maybe three or four years old, and it scared the ever-living hell out of me. Yeah. And just absolutely traumatized me. And then I kept asking to watch it. And like that was... And that like... It set this pattern for me for the longest time where I would have this like kind of teasing around the fire relationship with horror where I would like put my hands in and get burns, but wants to keep going back for more. And, and Beetlejuice really set that template for me where, uh, you know, I I would get scared and then not want to watch anything scary for the longest time and then go back and expose myself to it more. 
And uh, as I got older, I really came to appreciate it more and uh, see it on more of a deeper level. Uh, A lot of the uh, the thematic stuff in there, this kind of like Kafka-esque afterlife bureaucracy. I I just love that that conceptual look at the afterlife. As a matter of fact, when I started working as a teenager and DVDs came around, Beetlejuice was the very first movie I bought with my own money where I went out myself and like paid for it with what I had made. And I remember coming yeah. home, c- 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 coming home and watching it on the computer because we, we didn't have a DVD player yet. And oh, wow. I remember obsessively freeze framing that scene in the waiting room, trying to oh. pick out all of the different ghosts and figure out what had happened to them and figure out what yeah. their backstories were. Yeah, I remember doing that a lot, too. I, I don't remember how old I was the first time I saw Beetlejuice, but I know the first time I saw it, um, it was very uncomfortable for me. And, you know, watching it as you get older, you appreciate it. Depend, You know, watching it as a kid, it's kind of scary and uncomfortable. Watching it as a teenager, it becomes a little funny and still a little weird. But then as you grow and the more that you watch it, you just you notice things about it. You appreciate different things about it. And it's um it's interesting because I actually um was thinking, I don't remember where this came up or why this came up, but I, I haven't actually seen it in a really while. It, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it, um, I had kind of forgotten some of the vulgarity that's in it. Cause I'm sitting here thinking like, Oh, this is like a, an easy introduction of horror for kids. And I'm forgetting about the part where he like grabs himself and he cusses and he says all these things. And I had just like, because I had seen it in so many different stages and I didn't notice that stuff when I was younger, but then as an adult, I'm like, Oh, it's kind of raunchy. I know. And like so much like family and like kids entertainment from the 80s, you go back and look at it now and it's like, they were just doing that. It's like, it's like Disney did like their like Watcher in the Woods and something wicked this way comes. And it's like all the other family filmmakers were like, oh, we can get away with putting adult stuff in kids movies now. And so you've got like, you know, I remember Beetlejuice. There were toys. There was a cartoon like this was marketed to families and kids. And here's Beetlejuice grabbing himself and dropping F-bombs. And nobody nobody thought anything of it at the time. I definitely didn't. And I didn't even remember it. It's, and even seeing it as an adult, it being a while, I didn't remember that. I remember all of the other stuff. Like I remember the girls in the little house and I remember, you know, him being kind of rough around the edges in general. That's kind of his whole character. And I watched the animated series. I was like familiar with those things, but I was like, I don't think he says that. And I remember looking it up and being like, oh no, he does say that. <laughs> And it, and it really like, I think it kind of, again, it's just kind of changes the experience for you when you notice things like that. Cause it's really funny. The stuff that he says is very funny. Um, and I, and I agree. I like, I like the concept of the afterlife in the waiting room. And I, I remember like trying to figure out whatever, what was going on with everybody too. And it's, that's definitely, that's definitely a really good movie. And it's funny because I always say that like horror is subjective. So whatever, you know, everybody's got a different perspective of things that make them uncomfortable, things that scare them, what they consider horror. And I don't know that I would have, and you're hundred percent right. Beetlejuice is absolutely a horror movie, but it's just funny to think about. It's not really marketed that way. And a lot of people don't really think about it like that, but it is, I mean, in, in essence it is, it's, I mean, definitely a darker movie. So that was fun. I like that movie a lot. I'm trying to think of what's, I guess next we'll do, um, Ringu was the other one. Oh, yeah. So I first heard about this uh, on internet message boards in the lead up to the American remake coming out. Sure. uh, Because there was this viral marketing campaign with the American remake 
where it was almost like this ARG where like they were actually leaving copies of the videotape in places and uh, this oh. very, yeah, it was really cool. Like uh, yeah. I wish they still did stuff like this. They were actually leaving copies of the cursed video in like stadiums and movie theaters. And yeah. uh, they had these fake websites set up. Like uh, okay. originally there was a subplot in the movie where Chris Cooper was going to play this, uh, I think he was a convicted murderer there, okay. a convicted pedophile that Naomi Watts's character was interviewing for a news story. And like at the okay. end of the movie, she was going to give him the tape and that was going to be the way she passed it on. Uh, and they, yeah, they had this website set up where it was like this guy's like I'm innocent blog from prison. And uh, I, I can't remember, like, I think they had one for the resorts uh, that she goes to. Uh, they had this whole like world built up around it. And yeah. so I, I found out about this movie coming out through that. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a really cool concept. Mm -hmm. And because I was an insufferable teenage hipster, when I found out that it was a remake of a foreign film, I was like, I've got to see the original first yeah. because the, the original is always better. You know, I'm yeah. 16 and I'm insistent that, oh, the, first, <laughs> the book is always better. The original is always yeah. better. Yeah. And I could not find a copy because at that time, the J-Horror boom had not really come to the United States yet. Okay. And so I ended up finding in the like weirdest corners of the internet, I mm -hmm. think it was called Ringworld, and it was a message board filled with people who were just obsessed with the original Ring series because okay. by the, 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 this time in Japan, uh, they, they, they made a whole bunch. There'd been a TV movie. There'd been like a TV miniseries. And uh, yeah, yeah. And there was just like all these people fixated on it. And it was Japanese people who spoke English and then also American expatriates in Japan and Americans with like satellites. And I made friends with a bunch of people there. And I found this person who was an American living in Japan and he had this bootleg ring set up and okay. his sister lived in the States and he would bootleg stuff, send it to his sister to get it into the country. Okay. And then his sister would distribute it for him. And so I got my hands via this brother sister duo yeah. all of these J-horror movies before the J-horror boom really I happened in America. Because yeah. I saw that original ring and I was just like, wow, I, I had never really seen a foreign horror film before. I had seen mm -hmm. a few like arty movies, but never really a foreign horror movie. And this like opened my eyes to this whole new realm of overseas horror. And it was like America and England are not the only places making stuff like sure. this. And yeah. you know, just it, like I said, I was 16 at the time. It just blew my mind. And so I started buying all of these bootleg VHSs off of this guy. And yeah. by the time I graduated high school, had like a, like, arm's length of VHS tapes that I got <laughs> off this guy. And uh, that kind of segued me into all of these other uh, uh, bootleggers who were doing yeah. stuff like uh, exploitation movie bootlegging or like underground movie bootlegging. And I, I joke with my wife that I had like whole like spy style networks of bootleggers <laughs> that I was in contact with. Yeah. And you know, once places like Vinegar Syndrome and Severin came around, they started shutting these people down oh, because sure. now all of a sudden, yeah, now all of a sudden there was money to be lost back in the 90s and early 2000s. It's like, who cares if some kid in Oklahoma is buying like a third generation dub of a Coffin Joe movie or something. But, sure. you know, oh, now we're coming out with the three DVD box set. We got to shut them down. But uh, sure. starting with the ring, uh, starting with ring uh, for about probably a good eight years or so, I was a dedicated uh, purchaser of 
films of dubious provenance and that really, you know, opened my eyes to a whole bunch of different types of horror and movies. And it was all because of the Japanese ring. Yeah, that's really cool. So what did you end up thinking of the American compared to the Japanese? I like the American one better. I think that Sadako coming out of the TV is scarier in the original uh, yeah. versus the Davy right, Chase right. Samara. But I really think that's there. I, I, uh, I really think that the original ring is so culturally specific to Japan. I feel like if you grew up immersed in this culture, yeah. that it has more meaning for a Japanese native viewer versus an American, where it's more of this kind of informed uh, acceptance of it. Like uh, something that really struck me was just how readily and how easily everybody in the original accepts that there are ghosts. And sure. like I talked yes. to the people on the Ringworld forum and they explained to me that in Japan, it's very common for the average person on the street to believe in the supernatural. And like if you grab yeah. somebody on the street in Japan, there's like a 60, 70 percent chance you tell them you saw a ghost. They'll be like, OK, cool. I've seen a ghost, too. Versus right. America is a much more skeptical culture. It's a much more kind of up in the air thing here. And there's just all of these very small but also very at the same time, big aspects of the original ring where I feel like it's more profound to a Japanese viewer who has that yeah. con cultural context. And I feel like, uh, oh, what's his name? Gore, Gore Verbinski. He really did a great job of interpreting that to an American movie yeah. and yeah. making it something that is at once faithful to the source material while also being a very Western film that has more yeah. of that kind of gut impact. Yeah, and I think, like, and this is, I feel like this is pretty common in Japanese and Korean horror. I feel like a lot of times their stuff is just so much more atmospheric or subtle, whereas mm -hmm. American horror tends to go for the jumps and the frequent scary stuff. And it, you become like, a lot of times it becomes about walking this line between like, you become desensitized to the scary portion and they don't linger as long because they're happening so fast. And I think that like, you know, seeing the Japanese one, which I had, I'm pretty sure I saw the American one first. Um, but then of course, once I saw the grudge and I learned that there was a Japanese version of that, then it kind of took me to learning the Japanese or going to see the, uh, the Japanese version of the ring and the, you know, the originals. And I think that that horror, it just hits so differently, even as an American, somebody who's like seen, and I feel like they, they do horror a lot. I guess in most instances, I feel like it's done better because it tends to linger. Like it gets in your skin, like the, the discomfort and the questioning and not knowing what's going on. And I felt the same way with, I don't know if you've seen, um, you probably have, but the, the original pulse. So yes. The, yeah. So yeah. Pulses. Um, I have it right here. Yeah, I found it at the dollar yeah. store a couple of weeks ago. Yes, yes, yes. So I um I saw again, I saw the American one first. And they're almost it's so interesting because they carry this um their message is really close to being the same. And then it's told almost completely different. And I felt so much more um, I guess invested in what was going on when I watched the original. The American is is still good. I like it. I think it did fine. Um, but it's just for some reason, it's just something more about the atmosphere and the storytelling and the way that these characters interact with each other in the original. Like it just leaves you feeling that hopelessness that they feel 
And it just lingers. Like it lingers so much longer than the American remakes of pretty much any of those. I feel the same way. Um, but yeah, I, I actually really did. Um, I really did like the um, Ringu. Like I really did like that a lot. And I think it's a much slower burn than the American one, but I think the payoff is still really high. Oh, so yeah. I really, I really like that one a lot too. I'm a big fan of Japanese and Korean horror in general. Like I just feel like it just is, is so, it just so, it hits me so much more like harder, I guess. Like it just, I don't know. It just, like I said, it gets in my skin and it leaves me like really thinking or like really uncomfortable for days sometimes. And I love that. Have you seen uh, Noroi? No, I don't think oh, so. Oh, okay. Noroi is one of the scariest movies I have ever seen. It is a Japanese found footage movie. Oh, I love found footage. Okay. Uh, I saw this at a horror convention a couple years ago. Okay. Uh, had no idea what I was walking into other than this is a Japanese found footage movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think that it was speaking of bootlegs. I don't even think that they really had the DVD. I think that somebody had like a VHS like okay. rip off and they like had it on one of them TVs with the, 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 the black cart, like they used to have in middle oh, school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's like an auditorium at like 11 o'clock at night and they shut out all the lights in the room and something was wrong with the air conditioning system. And you know, it's coming on summer in Texas and they had like jacked it all the way down. And so it gets to like 50 degrees in this room. And I swear you could see people's breath and they just turn this thing on and you could have heard a pin drop in that auditorium by the time it was done. It starts out saying that what you are about to see is the final straight to video release by this Japanese paranormal investigator. And apparently back in the 90s, there was this trend in Japan of straight to VHS, like uh, alien autopsy, like in search of Bigfoot type movies. And then you just start to see all of these random clips of things. And it's like a scene from a game show and a scene from a children's show. And then like footage of around an apartment building with like all these birds. And it's like, why are we seeing all this stuff? And very slowly you start to see what the connections are between all of these scenes and a story kind of starts to develop under the surface. And so by the time you realize what you're actually seeing, it's like, oh, shit. And it starts to hit you with this like slow series of like sinking dread feelings as all the pieces start to come together. Okay. I'll have to look that one up. I think the last, so the first, my, like the first movie I've seen that's a Korean found footage film is Ganjium Haunted Asylum. Um, I love that one. Like it, I saw it randomly. Um, I don't know how I saw it. Somebody, something that I followed, I'm sure, but like it shared that picture of the girl where her eyes get, you know, when she's whispering, that's like the scariest part of that whole movie. That movie, that part made me so uncomfortable, but I was like, I've got to figure out what movie that is. So I started just doing some research, trying to figure it out. And then magically, because everything's listening, right? Like it just showed up in my feed one day and I was like, that's the movie. And so like, I had to like go and watch it. And it was so 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 good like I loved that movie from start to finish it was so good and I was so I felt like I had been cheated because I didn't see it when it was new I loved that one and that was my that was like the first Korean found footage film that I'd I'd ever seen or heard of and I loved it I feel so bad because our assistant editor at Daily Grindhouse Katie she loves this movie Mm -hmm. and she's the one who put me onto it to watch it And I started watching it like a couple of months ago and I watched the first hour of it on like a Sunday 
and then like I, I had to get to sleep to get up early the next morning and I yeah. haven't gone back to it yet oh. and I feel so bad because Katie will be like hey Preston did, did you finish the movie I want to talk to you about the movie and I'll be like oh my god I forgot I gotta watch this so, so I'm, Katie if you're listening to this I'm sorry I'm gonna finish <laughs> one of these days Maybe this will be enough motivation. It's really good. And I don't know if you've ever, I like, found footage is probably my favorite. Well, it is. It's my favorite subgenre of horror. I absolutely love found footage. I have a huge respect for found footage. I know it's not everybody's cup of joe, but I love it. And one of the first found footage movies I ever saw before I really started getting into it as a subgenre was Grave Encounters, which is absolutely a B film. But it reminds me a lot of, well, I guess Gone Jim kind of reminds me of it because it came out before. Um, but it was, um, it kind of starts out very similar. It's very like, um, ghost adventure and far as like, it's really cheesy and the host is kind of a douchebag and like, he's like, they pay people to lie about ghost stories and stuff like that. And then they go into this asylum to do their show or whatever after making up all these lies and, you know, faking on camera, blah, blah, blah. And then like shit gets real, like really fast. And it just goes crazy after that. And they never get out of the asylum. And they're like trapped, and it's like so. It's their journey through, you know, trying to survive this asylum. And it, but it's very. It reminds me, or Ganjim kind of reminded me of that because they they start out, you know, it's very hokey and TV showy, and um, let's get these views and let's do this to make people want to watch it, blah blah blah. And then it's like things start kind of spiraling out of control. And I think it brought back all those like really good feelings of like discovering found footage. So I absolutely loved it. You got to finish it one day. It's so good. <laughs> and now I got Grave Encounters too because I have not seen that one. Oh, that's a good one, too. I like it a lot. It, again, very B film. Um, but I really appreciated what they were able to do with it for it to be a, a B film. I really liked it a lot. Um, I don't recommend the second one, but the first one. Was cool. <laughs> the, yeah, the second one was kind of silly, but the first one was really good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I um, I really did actually like, I think I like the American version of Ring, of the Ring, probably for just very different reasons. I think I like just very different things about them. Um, but I do think that as far as the the pace and like being, I guess, scarier more often, I do think the American one kind of does that a little bit more because you see more quickly, I guess, like all of the scares and stuff. Um, and it didn't, I don't feel, you know, the other one was a little bit of a slower burn. I saw that my camera froze. I can still hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, I don't know what happened. It just said camera off and like, I've got a okay. frozen image of myself. Hold on, I'm so sorry. No, you're okay. No worries. I don't know why it did that. Um, Do you want me to put you out and you can come back in? See if that helps? Yeah. I, yes, I'm so sorry. No, no, you're okay. Technical stuff happens to me all the time. Okay, give me just a second and I will remove and then you can come back in. I also just realized I had the wrong setting. Oh, well. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> I wonder why it looked weird. I thought it was just the screen I was looking at. 
Oops. I gotta remember to cut this part out when I do podcast episode. There we go. There we go. All right. There we go. Yeah. 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 No, I have, um, I can't even tell you how many times I've had to re-record videos of things that I do because of something not working or technology anyway. (laughs) But anyway, um, yeah, so I guess we'll go into the next one, which um, would be, I think I'm going to get the order right on the first try. Let's see. Um, Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny, and Girly. Ah, So I found Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny, and Girly completely sight unseen in a VHS bargain bin at this place called Supermarket Warehouse in the town where I grew up in Oklahoma. And you could find anything at this place. You would not think that a grocery store video store in a small town in early 2000s Oklahoma would carry the stuff that they did, but they had everything. That's where I first saw Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. That's where I first rented Maniac from. Um, I'm trying to remember just like so many things I, I originally found there. And they started bringing DVDs in. And I had friends from high school who worked there, uh, and I found out from them what they were doing was if a movie had not been rented at least once within the past year, it got pulled from the shelf, popped in the bargain bin, and that's where they made more room for the DVDs. And so... And they were getting rid of VHSs with like a four for 20 special or like five for like 20 special. And so I would just go in there and just like scoop up armloads of VHSs because Mm -hmm. the majority of them were horror movies. Yep. And... In my mind at the time, I could never have foreseen the like Arrow, Shout Factory, uh, you know, Severin world that we live in now. I was 100% convinced that if I did not rescue these movies and preserve them and keep them, that nobody was ever going to see them again. And I saw it as like my 17-year-old me's mission in life to preserve all of these old horror and exploitation movies. And one of these movies is this movie, Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny, and Girly. And it is this British movie about this wealthy, insane family that lives in a manor house out in the boonies, and they kidnap bums and hippies and like societal dropouts and bring them back to this manor house and force them to participate in this really crazy, elaborate role-playing game where they are the perfect family. And if anybody refuses, they get killed in these weird rituals themed around playground games. Mm -hmm. And their latest quarry decides to start turning the family against one another and it kind of becomes the Adams family meets the beguiled. And One, I had no idea where the hell this thing came from. I could find virtually no information about it. And the star actress in it, Vanessa Howard, Mm -hmm. you can tell she thinks she's going to win the BAFTA for this. Like she goes for the fences. This is one of the best, sincere, dramatic performances I've seen in a horror movie. And it was shot on location at this uh, real castle in England called Oakley Court. And uh, I was just fascinated by the setting in the movie because they go all through this place. Uh, It had been converted after World War II into public housing. Uh, The last person to own it had bequeathed it, if I recall correctly, to the British crown. And so it became legally the property of the United Kingdom, and they turned it into public housing. And they were also having Hammer and Bray films come out there and allowing them to use it to shoot horror movies. But while you've got these camera crews there, there's also people living there at the same time. Oh, right. 
And so for this movie, by this point, uh, it had gotten nominally cleared out and they let the director, Freddie Francis, just have free reign to go anywhere he wanted in this castle turned public housing and and film. And just watching this, I was like, what is this place? Because the architecture is really strange and there's like, you know, you'll have one room that's like super opulent with a pipe organ in it and like this majestic staircase coming down. And then like yeah. somebody will turn a corner and there's just like a tiled, cheap, like gas station looking bathroom there. And it's just yeah. really strange. And I was yeah. super captivated by the location and wondering, yeah. you know, what are these people's backstories? What is this place? And then just thought that Vanessa Howard's performance was just one of the most startling things I had seen in a non-mainstream film. Sure. And I wondered for years and years, whatever happened to this woman? And one day, it would have been about 2012, 2013, I just randomly Googled her on my lunch break. I was working as an optometric assistant at the time, and I found an obituary for her. And the obituary says, like, Vanessa Vanessa Howard Chardoff, ex-wife of Rocky producer Robert Chardoff, dead at 62. And it's like there's this whole missing space here because I knew that she had this brief career as an almost scream queen in late sixties, early seventies, Brit horror. And then she disappears and then pops up dead relatively young years later after having married the dude who made the Rocky movies. And I was just like, what, what happened? And uh, not long after that, I was at a horror convention and Rue Morgue magazine had a booth there. And the series of thoughts goes through my head. I think to myself, if you're writing for an outlet, if you have like some name behind you, you could like find out what happened to her. You could do this whole journalistic investigation, find people who knew her, find family members of hers, and you could find out what happened to her and write her story. And so I just walk up to the room morgue booth. My only writing experience at this point was writing for my college's magazine and writing for an optometric trade journal. And I had one of my uh, optometry trade journal business cards in my wallet. And I just pull it out and I put it in the hand of the guy at the booth. And I'm like, my name's Preston Fossil. I write for an optometry magazine and I've got a story for you. And I lay out the whole thing about Vanessa Howard. And I think to myself, okay, you just told this intern your whole idea and maybe he's going to talk to an editor. Maybe he won't. But, you know, at least you did it. At least you tried. Yeah. And the guy says, this sounds pretty cool. Let's talk. And he hands me his business card. And it's Dave Alexander, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of Remork Magazine. And I had just pitched this story to the EIC. <laughs> and we got in touch via email. And he said that he didn't really think that this was the right story for Remorg, but he said, you clearly know your stuff. Just the way that you write your emails, I can tell you're a solid writer. Let's have you start reviewing DVDs for the magazine. And that was my foot in the door for being a horror writer. That's where I got started out. The very first thing that I had published about horror cinema was a review of another movie that Vanessa Howard was in with Peter Cushing called uh, Laser Killer. And if I had not pulled this VHS out of the bargain bin at Warehouse Video, I might... Yeah, yeah, it was like this butterfly effect of weird British smut. Yeah, that's, I actually had not heard of this one. So I had to watch it, I had to watch it. So I watched it for the first time. Um, and it was so funny because I remember thinking at the end of it that I really liked it, but I don't, I don't know if I could explain why. 
Like if I had to, you know, if I had to say, I think it, it's so funny because like it kind of reminds me, and this is a bit of a stretch, but hear me out. I feel like it kind of reminds me of like a classier Texas Chainsaw Massacre of like this crazy ass family that like sometimes you get kind of so like you get kind of sucked in and you forget that they're crazy. Like there are these moments in between where they're like, you know, they're knitting or they're talking to each other like normal people. And then there's these moments where you're like, oh, that's right. They're nuts. Like you kind of forget because <laughs> you get kind of invested in them and wanting to see where this is going and what's going on with this other guest that they're not showing anymore. Like you, you start wondering about all of these pieces and what's going to happen. And, and it's, it's interesting because like I, actually, to be honest, watching the very beginning of it, I actually thought that it was going to go in a very different direction with the brother and sister because there's some like incestuous notes in the very beginning. And then it kind of like really went away from that. And then it just, I don't know, like, I feel like it's one of those things that I watched and I had no idea what to expect literally the entire time. And I think that's also part of why I liked it. But all I could think is this is like a much more sophisticated version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> and it's like, it's nothing alike. It's, it's, it has like very subtle, you know, things in common, but that's all I could think was like, I just, I did enjoy it. I really liked the movie a lot, but I didn't, it was very hard for me to think about why. I don't, I still don't really know, I, to be honest, but that's what I kept thinking was much more sophisticated Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it was a fun movie. I, um, I think there's a lot of entertainment value. And I think that the location definitely adds a lot to what's going on because it is very like, um, because everything does look so vastly different depending on which part of the building and even the outside, like there's parts of outside that are very manicured and very elegant looking. And then there's parts that look like abandoned buildings and broken up, you know, um, foliage and like, I don't know, like it just, it's so crazy, but I think that kind of adds to that pull like back and forth of this family's very normal. Oh wait, no, they're not. Like, it's just an interesting divide, which I really liked a lot. The, the, the setting really adds to it. Uh, that, that place is haunted. That place is haunted in real life. Like yeah. going back before about uh, talking about people believing in ghosts versus yeah. not believing in ghosts, America being more skeptical. I've been to Oakley Court. And if I didn't believe in ghosts beforehand, I believe in them now. Yeah. There's something off there. Hmm. It's a beautiful location. Yeah. Uh, they've, they've turned it into a hotel now. You, you can oh. actually stay there okay. for su surprisingly reasonable prices too. Uh, wow. And they've, uh, they've added wings onto the sides for extra rooms, oh, but okay. the, the middle of it pretty much still looks that way. Uh, especially like upstairs where they've got the, the bedrooms for the family. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it yeah. still pretty much looks that way. They've uh, filled in part of the floor so that they okay. could uh, turn the middle of that into a sitting area instead of being able to look down through the railing. But okay. it's, uh, it still pretty much looks like that. And uh, beautiful environment, beautiful atmosphere. They've got a great restaurant downstairs there. They've got a full service bar downstairs there. Wow, okay. You can just sit out on the banks of the Thames. But there's a certain room up there and there's just something off about it. Hmm. and you talk to people who've worked there for a long time, mm -hmm. and they'll tell you stories. Uh, so back in the 70s, when uh, they still were using it as public housing, uh -huh. a police get called out there a couple of times on two different occasions, and there's this uh, woman there named Penelope Genault. I'm okay. probably pronouncing that correctly. Okay. And the first time they get called out there is because her three-year-old has gotten out of his playpen on the grounds of the building, and gone down to the Thames and drowned. And it's written off as an accident, 
but then they get called out there shortly after that, and her 18-month-old is drowned in the bathtub. And she says that the phone rang, she was preparing the bath, and she lays the 18-month-old down on the ground, okay. and when she comes back, the 18-month-old is in the bathtub and dead. And now the police are investigating this as a murder. And she right. says, no, I didn't kill my kids. The woman in white killed my kids. The woman in white who's involved with the people in robes who walk the grounds at night when the moon is full. Now, this is the 70s. It's England. We're coming off the tail end of swinging London. Cops think, okay, drugs, psychedelics, this is sure. a bad scene. Yeah. So the cops, start, the cops start to interview other people around there just because they're trying to do due diligence, you know, make yeah. sure. Yeah. Everybody else they talk to tells them, oh, no, she's telling the truth. It's the witches who come out when the moon is full and they gather at the boathouse at Oakley Court down on the banks of the Thames and they do rituals and the witches and the woman in white killed those kids. And that room where Penelope stayed, uh -huh. you walk past that room now and there's something there. Yeah. And there are people who have been there who will tell you they've been sitting on the back patio and looked up to the windows of that room and seen the silhouettes of the woman in white. Hmm. And there's something about that ambiance and that energy that I think really carries over into the movie that you're watching that adds that weird sort of oh, yeah. uncanny quality to it. Yeah. And I guess it, like if I if going if I go back and watch it again, I'm sure it'll change the experience too. So what did so what did Penelope end up doing? Like did they end up arresting her? Do you know? No, they weren't oh. able to pin anything on her. They sincerely believe she did not do it, and she just kind of disappears from the historical record at this point. Sure. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Hmm. I feel like now I want to look all that up because I, I feel like there's like. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, I feel like, and it's, it's funny because like, there's a lot of, um, there's plenty of places that are in horror movies or horror shows that like have stories behind them. Or like you have things that show up in films sometimes that aren't supposed to be there, but it ends up being fake or, you know, like there's all these things that come up, but it's like some of the history behind buildings, especially if you know it before you see a film or TV show or whatever. I feel like that, that to your point, like that definitely adds to the experience. Cause then you're thinking, yeah, that's really, everything is off. It's not just the family. It's now everything around them too. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. That definitely would change the experience for me. Cause I just thought it was a unique, but very different looking, you know, setting for the story to take place. But yeah, that's crazy. Ooh. And I found a message board this one time of uh, people uh, recalling having grown up there oh, when okay. it was public housing oh. and there's people who say hey when you were a kid does anybody else remember that lady who used to chase kids around the building and chase them around the halls and she was always wearing a white dress who was that crazy lady that lived there and it's like this shared experience yeah because it's not just one person saying this like yeah it's anybody that's been there that's yeah like isn't it goosebumps that's crazy and the other spooky thing is people who've stayed in that room okay say that they've woken up in the middle of the night before mm -hmm. feeling watched and one of the desk clerks there told me this you know this this is a tracks you know, fairly uh 
ritzy people because uh, to stay in the luxury suites, which is which this room is now, that's that's a little more expensive versus the, okay. the wing add-ons, which are what you would pay for just any hotels. But the okay. uh, the middle build the middle suites in the original building are like the luxury room. So you know we're we're talking high society here. And yeah. you know, the desk clerk says, I've seen society women who you know stood there with their noses in the air while bellhops carried their stuff up to the rooms earlier in the day, mm-hmm. running downstairs at three in the morning in their slips with their luggage in their arms, wanting out of that room because they woke up and there was a woman standing over them. Oh. Or they woke up and they looked into the bathroom and they say there's a little boy sitting in the tub staring at them and oh. a woman in a white dress standing next to the tub. And it's only women who see the ghost. That's a weird phenomenon about it, is that only women see the woman in white, women and children. Right. But no man. Children are like more susceptible to that stuff in general. As you know, kids and um and animals are like more susceptible mm-hmm. to like seeing and experience things like that. Yeah, that's terrifying. I would never say yeah. that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not uh I can watch it on a screen and I'm a big chicken. I'm not going to see it either. <laughs> but I know there's like um we had like side a side tangent. We went to this um I, so I live in Atlanta and there's this like uh, this ghost tour that you can do in Atlanta and it takes you down, you know, around midtown. It takes you to the Fox Theater and talks about the fires and blah, blah, blah. And there's a couple of buildings that we went by that I still don't even remember what they were called or what the significance was. But there's this old building that's kind of um, more than a little rundown, like to the point like you're literally not allowed to go in it because it's dangerous because there's walls crumbling and ceilings coming down and, yeah. and so on and so forth. And plus, there's always like homeless people and you just never know what you're going to find. So like you're not allowed to go in there. But by the time we circle back to this building it's nighttime and so we go in the parking lot and most people are just kind of standing back looking at it listening to the history but like the group the small group of people that I was with I was like well I want to go like take pictures and like go closer and so we do and so at the time it's like me and these two other guys and my best friend she's standing kind of like I don't know maybe like 20 feet back from us and we go up to this building and it was this weird moment because I don't have a lot of crazy experiences, but this was one that made me realize that I don't want any experience. Like we literally like we're standing in the door. Um, the person to my right is taking pictures inside the door because we can't go inside and like just taking pictures around in general. And uh, as if it was choreographed, um, like on the count of three, almost like we all just back up. There was like this immense amount of pressure from this building and we all just like in the same step back up and we all have tears in our eyes, all three of us. And we're just kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with that. Like, you know, and we, we go, we go to, I go to walk off first cause I'm officially freaked out because I, at this point, this was before we knew anything about this building. So I go over and I'm like trying to go tell my best friend, like this weird thing just happened. I'm kind of ready to go closer to the group. And, um, and she's staring up at a window, which is creepy in general. And I'm trying to like get her attention and she will not snap out of it. It was the weirdest thing. Like she I called her name like six times and I'm, I'm like this close to her at this point. And I finally say her name and she goes like this and she literally has tears just like streaming down her face. And she had no idea that I was standing there. Like it, she didn't hear me. She didn't see me come up. Nothing. And I was like, I asked her if she was okay. She goes, yeah. And she's like cleaning her face. And she was like, that was really weird. I was like, did you see something? Like, what were you looking at? And she didn't know. She couldn't tell me. So we started talking about like what just happened to me and these other two people. And so we're talking about it. And we go back up to the group. 
And of course, because this is always the case, it used to be, um, it had been a, um, what was it before? It was something before it became a hospital, but of course it became a hospital. And of course there were stories about these really awful things that happened to people that were there when they were overpopulated and they didn't have enough, you know, staff to help take care of people properly. And there's all these bad things and, you know, these, these basement abortions and like all these things and all this just negative, negative, negative. And I'm like, well, that's why we felt all that pressure on our chest when we got too close to the door. It was like the craziest thing. And I think that was kind of like what solidified like the concept of energy and like things existing past our knowledge. But like, I just, I've, I've believed in it ever since then. Cause that to that point I hadn't had anything crazy like that, but it was just like all of these sad stories and these things that had happened and they lingered, they were still there because we felt them when we got too close to the building and it was pretty crazy. I know side tangent, but it just made me, and it just made me think of like the fact that like, we didn't actually technically see anything, but we could feel it. Like it was palpable, like, you know, <laughs> and, um, and it was like the, it's just the craziest experience ever, like to just feel it and know that that was like a situation, like knowing what had happened, um, you know, in the past with that building and the things that could have gone on there. It was like, it was terrifying. So I don't go like, I'm not interested in like <laughs> any haunted nothings. <laughs> Yeah, that's really cool though. I yeah, obviously I didn't know any of that. I had no knowledge of the movie before, but yeah, now when I go back and watch it, I'm gonna be thinking about all of the stuff like, ooh, you know, that'll add to it for sure, I think. I think it will. And I guess that takes us to your last one, which I left this one last on purpose, which is uh poor pretty Eddie. Okay, so yeah. another another Oklahoma origin story here. So okay. I would have been 16 or 17. I wish I could remember what winter this was, but this big storm rolls in and they end up canceling school for like three or four days. And, uh, you know, it's at like six o'clock at night. It's dark outside. There's ice coming down and they come on the news and they say, you know, schools are closed due to inclement weather. Roads are too dangerous. It's too closed. And you know, I'm, I'm a 16, 17 year old dumbass. So my first response to this is I need to go to the movie store and get movies to watch while I'm staying home. And so at like seven o'clock at night, I get in my car and drive out into the ice storm up to Hollywood video to rent a whole bunch of movies to keep myself occupied. Okay. And I, at the time had been working my way through this thing called the cult section at the back of Hollywood video. Did, did, did you have Hollywood videos in uh, Georgia? Yes. yes. Okay. So, so do your, did, did yours have this thing, the, 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 the cult section at the back? I don't remember to be so honest. I, I, I think my, so my sister had to sneak a lot of horror movies for me when we would go to those things. And I think she kind of selected it for me. So it wasn't like too bad. So I, I don't honestly remember, but it seems possible. I know we have like sections. So maybe. So, yeah. yeah so, so apparently not all the Hollywood videos had this. Cause when, oh. when we moved to Texas, uh, the one that I started going to just had horror. It didn't have a cult section, oh, but okay. uh, there, there is this thing with some Hollywood videos, they would have the section at the back of the store behind the horror section, and it was called just cult. And it's like, this is where they put all the stuff that they weren't sure how to categorize or that they felt maybe could be categorized, but it was maybe a little too intense to sit alongside the other drama films or horror films. And so this is where I first saw Blue Velvet, and this is where I first saw Freaks oh. and Amazon Women on the Moon, Elvira, you know, kind of like right. weird, counterculture-y, not quite horror, maybe a little bit too dark stuff. And okay. I had made it my mission to just rent 
all the movies Every from the time. cult section and watch them. <laughs> yes. It was never in any particular order. There was no rhyme or reason to it. It just, just I'd go in there on a Friday. What box looks the coolest tonight? Do they have it? Okay, that's coming home with me. Okay. And so ice is piling up on my car outside and there's a good chance I'm going to die driving home. And I'm standing here in the cult section and this box that I've never really seen before jumps out at me okay. and it's Shelly Winters and mm -hmm. she's holding a dead blood soaked Elvis impersonator in her arms. And the colors are really lurid. They're kind of pastel colored, kind of yeah. puke colored. You can't really put your finger on it. And okay. the title on it is heartbreak motel. Right. And I just remember thinking, what the hell is this? Yeah. And I take it home and I watch it maybe the next day or the day after. I can't remember. And I remember finishing the movie and thinking to myself, what the hell did I just watch? Yep. <laughs> yeah. It is It is completely indefensible. It is not a good movie. It is one of the most sordid, awful movies I've ever seen. But at the same time, it's got, it's got Shelley Winters in it. Yeah. It's got... Leslie Uggams in it. It's got the guy who played Lurch in it. Yeah. Uh, the script, certain parts of it are kind of well written in places, and then other parts are just like completely awful and dark and sleazy and seedy. And it's just like, where did this come from? And so I go out online, and I don't think it was Google yet. I think I was still using like maybe like web crawler or AltaVista or something yeah. at this point, yeah. Yahoo search. And I'm looking this up, looking this up, and I find out Poor Pretty Eddie is the producer's cut, which one is weird. There was a producer's cut of an exploitation film, but it's the producer's cut of a movie called Poor Pretty Eddie. Yeah. And I find this huge write-up on it in a book called Sleazoid Express. Okay. And it's a book about 1970s and 80s Times Square. And the book is a travelogue of the most prominent grindhouses on 42nd Street, the kind of movies that played there, and then like histories of the theaters and the people who went to see them, and then looking at each theater through the most popular types of movies that had played there. Okay. And prior to stumbling across this book, which I found because of Poor Pretty Eddie, I mm -hmm. had never heard the word Grindhouse. I had never heard the word oh, okay. Exploitation Movie. I had never heard of 42nd Street. And this just opened my eyes up to this entirely new world. Uh, I had seen Exploitation Movies at that point in my life, but I didn't realize that that's what they that's were what called. They yeah. yeah. And I order this book and I just devour this thing. Mm -hmm. And it completely changed how I watched movies for the next several years. And this is what really turned me on to using some of those VHS networks I talked about before that I had beginning like Japanese cinema from yeah. to now start looking for exploitation movies, to look for underground horror movies, to look yeah. for stuff like this. And uh, that's what got me interested in that. And I started reading more and more about 70s and 80s, 42nd Streets. And then that became the subject of those short stories that I was writing for my mm -hmm. college's magazine. Okay. And then the first book I published, Our Lady of the Inferno, is completely set in Times Square in 1983. And so my entire fiction career is what it is now because I watched this movie and had to research it and because I found this book, Sleazoid Express. Mm -hmm. And Sleazoid Express was written by Bill Landis and his wife, Michelle Clifford. And uh, oh, he's okay. who I wrote my first nonfiction book about now, a biography right. of uh, Bill's life. 
And I literally would not be where I am today as a writer. I would not have the professional life that I do. I wouldn't have the career that I have if I had not rented this movie yeah. and had to look up what it was about, where it came from. And I, I had not stumbled across Lizard Express. That weird chance rental of this film like ended up setting the stage for the rest of my professional life. That's crazy. I, so I'm actually really relieved that you didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> when I watched it, I was like, why is this on his list? <laughs> Total honesty. Like, I was just like, this is, I will never watch this again. But I, I mean, I needed to, I needed to see it. Like, as far as like my intrigue, you know, we, you had, um, we had talked back and forth about like the concept of what they were doing to films and cutting them and editing them based on the audiences. And I was so intrigued by all of that. That I was like, okay. And I saw the cast and I knew several people that were in it. And I was like, okay. And then I watched it and I was like, oh God. <laughs> like I and, and then I'm the, and I guess like, and so it's one of those things where it's like it is influential horror, not favorite, right? So and I and I'm like, so I'm so relieved that you like that movie. Oh no, it's indefensible. Yeah, it's the movie. Um, so the version that I saw was whatever one is on Tubi, which is um i think it is i think it was i think it did say just poor pretty eddie i don't think it had yeah. um so it's whatever you what version did you say that was that's the original okay. so that's you probably saw like the very first like the version okay. that most people on times square would have seen okay yeah and, and i um and i and i definitely do think there are some moments where like i really did want to like it like there were you know like so some of the because so, some of the characters are like almost relatable like not quite but almost like you've got the kind of washed up da dancer burlet whatever like you know like those kinds of things where like you've seen things like that in other movies and you feel like it's about to be something that you can connect with and then it just kind of like pulls the rug like right out from under your feet um it was yeah it was a crazy movie i think um and i didn't know any of that about the cutting of films and like you know, changing them based on audiences. Like I didn't know any of that. So all of that was, uh, you know, learning curve for me. Um, and then I think it, it kind of encouraged me to read more about it. So I read a couple different things about it, article, like just articles that I found and, and reading like um, kind of what the story was from the perspective of the people that were in it. And they all thought it was nuts too. Like they, like they weren't, there was no like, the, you know, they, there was no uh, fog. Like they knew exactly what it was, you know, there was no denying what it was. And um, it's pretty interesting because I, I know like you had actually shared that like the hit, like the pe the person who made it was like, in adult films right before and then um and it kind of and it, again a bit of a stretch but it kind of made me think of like another movie that i'll never sit through again which is cannibal holocaust and the but but you know the guy that made that was originally in adult filmmaking as well and so like when he kind of went into that you're just like it's just interesting the the con like the similarities there because it was like cannibal holocaust is a horrible movie but there's no denying its impact. Like when you watch that film, like you don't ever forget it. And then you, I've learned a lot about it over the years after seeing it. And it was just interesting to think about the fact that like, he also came from that background and then made this film that made me really uncomfortable. And then this one also made me really uncomfortable. Um, so it's a lot of interesting stuff about it behind the scenes. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could really make a movie about the making of Poor Pretty Eddie because yeah. uh, his, his name was Mike Thevis. Okay. And he was in charge of the pornography operations for one of the five families in New York. It was either the Genoveses or the Gambinas, if I recall correctly. And he had been this newsstand proprietor. He started out as the straight guy. And then he realized that he was making like 90% of his money off of 10% of his sales, which was all girly magazines back in the 50s. Okay, and sure. he got deeper and deeper into distributing adult films to the point that he ends up crossing paths with the mafia and becomes like this big wheel in the New York mafia as a porn distributor. Yeah. And uh, according to New York lore, he is the guy who came up with the idea to convert carnival peep booths into adult peep booths yeah. in adult bookstores. Okay. And he uh, he started distributing peep booths and got into like a war with this guy and up like burning down his warehouse to destroy this other guy's peep booths and like he ended up with the nickname the Scarface of Porn because he ends up actually killing a few rival gangsters uh, and ends up on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. He uh, had gotten arrested, broke out of prison, murdered a guy who testified against him and went on the lam and was on the top 10 most wanted list and was finally apprehended and uh, died in prison fairly recently. And uh, in the middle of all of this, he actually moves to Atlanta uh, and uh, sets up shop in Atlanta. This is where he's going to have his, um, what do you say, his his regular life, his normal life. He's got okay. these pretensions towards being a honest businessman. And he's like this okay. first generation Greek immigrant kid who's, you know, his, his parents came over here and now he's going to be the success story. He's going to be the, you know, yeah. I anybody can make it here and he gets this mansion and he obtain he obtains a uh, record studio and that's how he got the leslie uggams connection wow. and he was going to build this giant water park that he wanted to be like this free community water park and he wanted to be like this you know this was going to be his legitimate face yeah. and as he realizes that the fbi is starting to close in on him he realizes that he can kind of legitimize himself and launder his money by becoming a film producer. Right. And okay. at the time there was a lot of crossover between, like you said, people in the porn industry and horror movies because horror still kind of had this negative reputation. And it's like, well, if you want to make movies and you're a pornographer, horror is like one step up from porn. So why not? Sure. And so yeah. he gets the same idea. And so he gets involved with producing poor, pretty Eddie to launder mafia money. And so he can turn around and say, look at me, I'm like a legitimate movie producer. And so this entire thing is a mafia front for this guy. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the history and the the story behind it is is really really intriguing. And I because I, I remember reading that uh, I think the lodge that they use is actually in Athens, which isn't too terribly far from where I live actually. So I remember being like, of course, <laughs> like, <laughs> of course it's in Athens. Like it was, um, but this kind of neat, like having like that much history behind it. I mean, and it's kind of surprising there isn't anything film wise that like goes and talks about all of that stuff. Cause it is really interesting. And I wouldn't have even, I mean, seeing the movie without you, you know, having told me like the, the stuff that you had already told me, I wouldn't have found it interest. Like I wouldn't have thought to look into its background at this, like at this current state, I would have been like, Oh, that was an awful movie. And I probably would have just left it at that. So it was pretty interesting knowing some of that though, and going in and watching it and just thinking about that while watching it. it's pretty interesting. Um, mm -hmm. 
And yeah. that's, that's that's actually how we ended up with like an official producer's cut, the the Heartbreak Motel cut, is because after Thevis got arrested and taken down, uh, the guy who played Eddie and mm-hmm. one of the producers got together and successfully got the rights to the movie away from Michael oh, Thevis okay. and decided to do a complete overhaul of it. And the okay. Heartbreak Motel version takes out a lot of the nastier elements and drops mm-hmm. in unused dialogue sequences. And oh, okay. Shelley Winters, there's this one scene where she talks about why her bodyguard has the scars on his face. And oh, okay. Shelley Winters really swings for the fences in this scene. It's like she's like thinking, you can tell she's thinking to herself, I may be in this abomination of a movie, but I'm still Shelley Winters, gonna, damn it. Yeah. And she just goes for it and delivers this bombastic monologue and just like gives it her all. And it's like one of the only redeeming things you have come out of this entire <laughs> introduction. Yeah. And that, yeah. Cause that wasn't in the one that the version that I saw, that wasn't in my, I feel like my, the one that I saw must've been the one that just had, cause it had like a lot of pretty, like a lot of gritty stuff in it, like really uncomfortable scenes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I love that so many of these have impacted like your your whole like because you've got stories from like being a lot younger and like that's and that's crazy. Like I, I like that like you really did pick things that seriously impacted like mm-hmm. where you are, how you've gotten to these places. I love that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, well, thank you for taking time to come on the channel. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, I uh, I don't have a lot of people in my life to talk about horror with. So, and because the people in the horror community are also different in their experiences and what they like and the way they look at things. Um, it's always so interesting to like have conversations like this and hear about people's movies that impacted them. And, or even if it's a favorite, like that, those kind of lists are always interesting here too. So I've, I've really loved doing these. I'm definitely going to have to continue to do them um, spread out a little more, but definitely like, it's been great. Like learning, getting to know people, meeting people and just, um, talking about horror movies and what they are. I love it. It's been awesome. 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 So I really appreciate it. I know it's a, it'll be, let's see, I have like, there's like 10 or 11 of these. So I got really lucky that people wanted to be uh, included. So that's really cool. So I appreciate it for sure. Yeah, definitely. And if you uh, need any other guests down the road, I can uh, send a couple of people your way. Yeah. Yeah. I'll probably put out a beacon whenever I am. Cause these, so these videos are carrying me until the middle of February. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I was actually, when I, when I originally posted about it, I was really technically only looking for one person. And because <laughs> I'm, I'm like so new, I just didn't think anybody would, you know, reply. And that was a grave mistake <laughs> because then I got like a lot and I was, um, you know, I was talking to my editor and I was like, we can do this, right? Like, I'll just put a cap of like 10 people and we could do, we can make it work, you know? And he was like, yeah, we'll make it work. So it, it ended up being really cool. And I've met a lot of really cool people and I've had a lot of really cool conversations. So it's been awesome. I mean, you never know what podcast is going to take off. I mean, everybody starts out with, you know, one, 200 yeah. followers. And then the next thing you know, you know, somebody's yeah. got like 10, 11,000 followers. And I mean, you know, the horror community is so small and so kind of insular that uh, word spreads yeah. easy. So, you know, everything's an opportunity. Um, yeah. The, the, yeah, the, 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 the Vanessa Howard thing really showed that to me because uh, I found I finally ended up Rumorg didn't run it, but uh, this other magazine called Scream, based out of Philadelphia, picked it up, 
And I I wrote it and I figure, okay, like, you know, 30 people are going to read this thing, but at least I got to tell her life story. I at least got to, you know, find out what happened to her. I wrote it, yada, yada, yada. And I, I knew that they had distribution in Norway and in the United Kingdom because when okay. I was first pitching it to them, I said, you know, I want to get this to a fairly large audience. And, yeah. you know, I know that's, you know, you're one of the more obscure horror journals. So I'm just curious, what kind of sub- subscribership do you have? And yeah. the guy's like, well, you know, we got the States, we got England, we got Norway. And I'm like, okay, cool. And a couple of months after it runs, some dude like emails me out of the blue and he's like, hey, I got your email from like the editor of Screen Magazine. And I like hang out at Oakley Court in their bar there and I read Scream. And I was like reading this article about Vanessa Howard at the place where this movie was shot. I saw this movie back in the 70s. It's one of my favorite movies. And I always wonder what happened to her. And this dude owns like the British PetSmart. He's like this actual like insane, rich, crazy dude. And like that's how I got to see Oakley Court is because this guy was like, now that I know this, like I've got my hands on a print of the movie and I've like rented out the, uh, um, what do you call it? It's the the conference room at Oakley Court and I'm going to host a screening of the movie there. And I like want you to be there to talk about Vanessa Howard in this industry. Straight up puts me on a plane and flies me to England to talk to like 25 people about Vanessa Howard because because I published this article in this like magazine that I thought nobody was going to read. And I mean, that was an object lesson to me after that. It was like, if an opportunity comes your way, you take it, damn it. Yeah. That's actually, technically that's kind of what happened with this. I, I hadn't really put myself out there. I'm trying to interact, but I'm like very like social, social media is kind of like a, a thing that I don't actually like. I like the interaction. I just don't like the premise. It's, frustrating, it's exhausting, and you just never know what's going to work and what's not going to work. But being so new, I'm not used to getting a lot of interaction because it takes time to build up an audience or even people that want to interact with you or that, you know, even realize what you're doing. And so, you know, when I, when I did one, my, so my first one was with Joshua Marcella. He's a horror author in the indie world. And I was like, okay, he's really awesome. Like, you know, and I'm thinking like, this is cool. Like, you know, I'm sure like a few people will pick up on me because he's going to share the video whatever. Well, then when I, when I was looking for one person, I had kind of done, I kind of just sat in my head about like, I need to put myself out there. Like I've got to find a way to put myself out in a position to meet other people, to be able to talk to other people, because otherwise I'm I'm not really going to see any growth. Like that's kind of defeats the purpose. Um, and so I did, I finally was like, you know, fuck it. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to do this. (laughs) And this, that's what I did. I put, I put a tweet out and Josh, retweeted it. And then that was like, that's what got me these conversations. And, and it kind of, it worked in multiple, for multiple reasons. I'm seeing some growth from it, but I'm also like getting a sense of community that I don't know I expected to have. Like I kind of expected to just be this person out here floating, doing my thing. And instead it's turned into like supporter, like people who I interact with and I support them and they support me. And it's just, it's just been like, I'm just so glad that I sucked it up and just kind of did it because I was so nervous about not getting any interaction and being bummed about it. And it turned out to be like one of the best decisions I've made so far for the channel Um, and for myself, like as far as my love for horror, my passion for horror, like it's been really great. So yeah, I, I, I've definitely had, that has definitely changed my mind about just doing it, like reaching out to people, putting it out there, like, um, and it's been, it's been super great for, for me and for the channel. So I'm, I definitely agree. got to take the opportunities when they come up for sure. That's awesome though. 
you were probably like, what did you think when that happened? Were you just like, was, what? <laughs> and it's like, this doesn't happen. I know. <laughs> yeah. For a split second, for a split second, I thought yeah. maybe they were going to kill me. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. It's like, you entered a horror movie. You stopped living real life at some point, and now you are living in a horror movie. You're, like, going out to, like, some remote cursed hotel to, like, speak to a cabal of, like, British people. It's like, they're going to kill you. <laughs> this mysterious person who just so happens to have this, like, yeah, that's crazy. That's awesome, though, especially because you were so passionate about that. Mm -hmm. Like, that's awesome. Yeah, it is really sweet, too. The guy ended up uh, paying for a, a memorial bench for her that now sits on the banks of the Thames behind the hotel. It was really sweet. Uh, and he's uh, trying to arrange for her son to get out there now that the COVID restrictions are lifted, because uh, I don't think her son has ever been out to the hotel before. And he wants to see the memorial bench and take his daughter, her granddaughter, there to see it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. really sweet. Huh. What year did she die? Uh, 2012. Oh, uh, ter turned out that she was a extremely <laughs> hardcore smoker and really smoked herself to death at 62. And oh. it was, uh, yeah, it was really striking to me when I was interviewing her son and her son told me, I literally do not have a memory of my mother where she was not holding a cigarette. And he was like, I can go back through my mind and think, and all through my childhood into my adulthood, I cannot yeah. Im even imagine my mom not holding a cigarette. Oh, that sucks. Huh. That's really, that's a really crazy story though. Huh. Yeah. I didn't know any of that about it when I went into the movie because I'd never heard of it, but I did like it. And that's really interesting and crazy that that mm -hmm. worked out that way. That's insane. Well, that's awesome. Huh. Hmm. And I'm really glad though that you're getting to meet all these people that you're kind of segueing yeah. in. Like I said, you know, if you need if you need more guests after February runs out, uh, let me know. Yeah. I can point you to a couple of different people. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, if you want to do, continue doing authors, uh, you know, I can I can send a couple of different people your way. Yeah, I've um, I think I mostly have done authors. I think I've had like I'm trying to think. Most people have been indie um, horror authors, and then I think I've only had I'm trying to think maybe one or two that have just been like a horror enthusiast. Okay. Um, and then I have um, another, another person that I did um, of an episode with is a, um, is a booktuber. So he does okay. like horror books and sci-fi books or not sci-fi uh, fantasy books. And he does like stuff like that. So it's been, it's been really cool. And, and I think um, I'm definitely like one of the things, like one of my goals for 2022 is to start reaching out to like, artists and stuff too, because like I follow a lot of artists that do stuff that's very um, kind of macabre, like, I don't know, like just, just stuff that's very like dark or different or unique. Um, and just trying to meet like all kinds of different people from all over that do, that are into horror in the same way. Um, I have a, a horror um, YouTuber that I follow that does let's plays. He plays um, just horror games. Like that's his whole channel. Oh, and cool. I love him. I've been a follower for years. Um, I play horror games. Like I, I just, I really like him a lot. And I think it'd be really cool to talk to him about like his top five, like what would his top five be? And if any of them impacted like him coming to play horror games and 
Like that's what he does for a living. Like that's his job. Oh, and wow. um, so like, that's another thing that like, I, I'm hoping I can get, I'm hoping I can convince him because um, he's got quite a following. So we'll see if he would be willing to come on and do an episode. But yeah, no, I'll definitely reach out. I, I definitely intend to continue to do these because honestly, it doesn't even matter if it's the same people, like people that write horror, or even if it's people that have like the same movie on their list, because guarantee you nine out of 10, they're not going to say the same things because mm -hmm. most of the time we don't walk away from the same movie with the same feelings or the same experience. Um, and I think there's only been a couple of people that have had duplicates. Like, I think the thing has been on like two lists and I feel like there's something, there's another one, but it didn't matter because the things that they had to say about them were completely different mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's crazy. And I love it. I think it's awesome. So yeah, no, I'll definitely, I'll probably take you up on that for sure. Um, cool. I love meeting. I've, I've really loved meeting new people. The community has been awesome. So. That's fantastic. I'm glad it's been such a positive experience. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's uh, it's not easy putting yourself out there when you're not used to building the community in that way. So yeah, it's been good. But cool. Well, I won't take it too much more of your night then. Um, again, no, I really, fine. I really appreciate you taking time. This was a blast. Thank you. No, I love doing yeah. stuff like this. Yeah, no, me too, for sure. Um, we'll have to do it again. We'll come up with something else to talk about. <laughs> five more ran like, I don't know. We'll come up with something. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thanks. Um, this one goes out. I think, um, it's going to be the first February one. So it'll be like, I don't remember the third or something. It's like, it'll be the <laughs> first Tuesday in February. I'll send you the link when it comes out, of course. Um, cool. so it'll be slightly edited for time on YouTube and then the full of episode will be, um, released, um, on the podcast. So cool. Um, yeah, so cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, and have a wonderful rest of the evening. Yeah, thank you. You too. I appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, bye. bye. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for hanging out and watching our uh, top five influential uh, horror movies. Um, I'm really enjoying doing these episodes. They are a lot of fun, and I am really enjoying the interactions I'm having with other people in the horror community. So I hope you are enjoying watching them as much as I am having them. Um, these episodes will be also listed on our podcast, which will be in the description below. Um, and you can go there to listen to the full episode, um, without the cuts that we had to make for time references for, um, YouTube. And, um, yeah, make sure you circle back. There's going to be 11 episodes total. So make sure you're caught up on all of the ones before and after. And I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week and enjoy your weekend. We will see you in the next one.